today we have a further study talk in our series called Christ in the Old Testament. This is Search for Truth, your 15-minute program of Bible study and hymn singing. Your Bible teacher, Brian Johnston, has researched these talks which are based on the conversation Jesus had with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We don't actually know what he said, of course, but we read in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24 and verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Of course, the scriptures would be our Old Testament, which they had in those days. And today, our talk is about Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son. So, here's Brian. Thanks, John. The Apostle Paul makes a comment on the detailed accuracy of the Bible when he says in Galatians chapter 3 that the Old Testament promises were related to Abraham's seed in the singular. This, he pointed out, was in anticipation of one person, that is Christ. Matthew opens his gospel, and among the very first words of the New Testament, Jesus is declared to be the son of Abraham. Abraham waited around 25 years for the birth of Isaac, the son God had promised him. God had told Abraham that in Isaac his seed would be named. But the world waited around 2,000 years for the Messiah, who was also the promised seed and the chosen son of Abraham. And so the gospel was preached to Abraham in that God swore to him that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. This gospel blessing would come through Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, as stated at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And this was Abraham who was counted righteous based on the faith that he had even before he was circumcised. One day, as Genesis chapter 22 records, God asked Abraham to do something that must have seemed very shocking to him. He was to offer up his only begotten son. Those words come from quoting the letter to the Hebrews when it comments on Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, great man of faith that he was, was prepared to go through with this because he believed God could raise this unique son of his from the dead. In the first chapter of the fourth gospel, the gospel by John, we twice come across a word that's very often translated as only begotten. You find it in verses 14 and 18. So here they are, chapter 1 and verse 14 of John, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then chapter 1 of John and verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Older Bible translations usually translate the relevant original Greek word as only begotten. And this was based on the two parts of that original word. The first part means only or alone, and they next took the second part as meaning to beget, as in a man begetting a son, as we frequently encounter in the early chapters of the Bible in older translations. But this always caused concerns, because from the very first verse of John's Gospel, we have it proclaimed that the Word is eternal already fellowshipping with the Father from in the beginning. 
thoughtful people solve this difficulty by talking of how this must have been an eternal begetting without ever being able to explain what was meant by that. But then we come to the second of the two mentions of only begotten in John chapter 1. And here the problem becomes even more difficult. Remember, it talks about the only begotten God. Now, how is God begotten? Thankfully, scholarship has improved to the point that the standard go-to dictionary of the meaning of Bible words lists two basic definitions for the word we're considering. And they are one and only, as well as unique. Words only have meaning in relation to the other words that surround them. How then is this same word used elsewhere in the New Testament of our Bible? Well, this adjective is used a total of nine times in the New Testament, but only in one of two major ways. First, in referring on four occasions to a person's only son or daughter, that is, to the child of a human. The second way in which it's used is in referring to God's only son, known to us through the Gospels as the man Jesus. And all five of these uses are found in John's Gospel, in fact. The main conclusion that we can draw from all this is that what all nine uses of the words only begotten have in common is that they are used to refer to an only son or daughter of someone. In the case of God the Father, Jesus is his one and only, and so his unique son. One Bible expert writes, the underlying expression was rendered only begotten son in earlier translations. But despite the efforts of some to restore that rendering, the NIV, the New International Version, is a little closer to what is meant, and it reads one and only Son. And so it reads even more famously in John chapter 3 and verse 16. Finally, if we return to the two mentions of this word in John chapter 1, the two mentions with which we began, coming from verses 14 and 18, we see that Jesus, the Word, is not only God's one-of-a-kind Son, but he is none other than the one and only God. Now, you may think that in talking about the nine mentions of the word we've been studying, I've missed out a few other mentions of it found outside of John's writings. Well, it's true that the word begotten applied to Jesus is found in some verses in Acts and Hebrews where the Old Testament is being quoted from a verse in the Psalms. But these are different in that the New Testament itself simply says, you are my son. Let's take Hebrews chapter 1 as the example. It says, when he had made purification of sins, he, and this is Jesus of course, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. This really shows the supremacy of Christ. And here we're given two specific reasons why he is supreme. They're stated either side of the claim that Christ is better than the angels, and stated in order to support the fact of the Lord's supremacy over the angels. The first reason is that he's the exalted purifier of our sins. 
No angel could ever be that. And the second reason was the one about the Lord belonging to the line of David. Again, something that could never be true of any angel. But perhaps you don't recall our quoted verse, Hebrews 1 and verse 5, talking about how Jesus was a son of King David. You may have thought it was talking directly about Jesus being God's son. After all, isn't that how he's shown to be better than the angels? Because he's God's son? Well, wait a moment. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5, the verse in question, is built from two Old Testament quotations, one from the book of Psalms and the other from the second book of Samuel. To appreciate what it's saying, we need to do some research on those Old Testament quotations. The first quote comes from Psalm 2 and verse 7, where the speaker, in the first place, historically, was some newly installed king in Jerusalem. His position was under some threat, but he confidently says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The place to start in all Bible exposition is by researching what the original hearers were meant to understand by it in the first place. So let's do that. Psalm 2 appears to have been a coronation psalm, or at least it was used to recall and reaffirm the enthronement of the king in Jerusalem at some point in history when surrounding nations were flexing their muscles and wanting to rebel from being under Judean rule. Before Solomon's coronation, you remember, God had promised to David concerning his son, 2 Samuel 7:14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is, in fact, the other Old Testament text quoted in our Hebrews verse and makes it very clear, specifically in the case of Solomon, that each king belonging to David's dynasty was viewed as God's adopted son. This was true in a functional sense, meaning that the earthly king was viewed as the one charged with the same duty as God, and that was administering rule over God's people. This wasn't limited to Solomon, of course, because there's talk of David's throne being established forever. In general, the great king in heavenly Zion and the king of David's line in Jerusalem were viewed in such scriptures as existing in a father-son relationship. So going back to Psalm 2, we shouldn't overload it with mysticism. The today that it mentions is the historical coronation day of a new king in David's dynasty. Someone had recently ascended to the throne in Jerusalem, and the surrounding nations were taking the opportunity to signal that they were unhappy with this imperialist Judean rule in his hands. But at the same time, God was encouraging the king that on this, his coronation day, he was recognising him as acting as his son. And in that sense, God was begetting him. Of course, the greatest application of this text is indeed in its application to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. The first church of God in Jerusalem could see that its message was very meaningful in terms of what had taken place at the cross. And we find that reference in Acts chapter 4. And 2,000 years later, we are still praising God for his one and only Son.
As usual, I remind you that there's a very helpful transcript book available of all 12 study talks in this series. If you send for it, you'll be able to pursue further personal study and get more out of these radio talks. The book is available online and either you can get it yourself by downloading a copy from churchesofgod.info forward slash media or alternatively, you can request a hard copy book by asking for the title Christ in the Old Testament. Don't forget to include your postal address so we know where to send it. Now you can use email or the post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN4 8DY UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, once again, time has passed so quickly and unfortunately we must go. But many thanks for the pleasure of your company today and do join us again next week for the next talk in this series on Christ in the Old Testament. It's called Christ Our Passover from 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. So until next time, it's goodbye and very best wishes from our Bible teacher, Brian, our producer, David, our singers and me, John. So see you again soon. And in the meantime, we wish you God's richest blessings. Because he lives, I can pray.